Hey there, this is Meg. I'm your host, and you are listening to Mental Status, a podcast about burnout for people in the mental health profession. Quick disclaimer, because you know that stuff is important these days. Uh, Mental Status is a podcast about burnout in the mental health field. It's for entertainment and educational purposes only. This is not therapy, and this is not clinical supervision. There are no CEUs associated with this podcast. Enjoy it and share it as you will. And if you're in a space where you're needing deeper support, please seek out therapy or supervision for yourself from somebody who is qualified to provide those services for you. Okay, here we go. All right, now I have to get into my podcaster mode. Um, all right, everybody. Thank you so much for joining. This is mental status. And my name is Meg. I'm your host. This is a podcast about burnout and I have a super special guest with me here today. So I want to let them introduce themselves. So special guest, who are you? Where are you? And how are you doing today? Hi, Meg. Good morning. So I'm Christy Kotcher. I'm a professional self-care coach and also a licensed marriage and family therapist in the Northern California area in the Bay Area. Awesome. Yeah. And how are you today? Doing well. It's wonderful to get to connect with you. I really appreciate the work that you do. And it's wonderful to be tapped into that community of therapists and mental health specialists because they know know where it's at. They know what's up. (laughs) They certainly do. That is so true. Okay. So with all the formalities aside, let's just dive right in. Uh, Christy, how about you tell us a little bit about your burnout story? It's really a story of being there and back again. Currently I'm in a really great place and I love what I do and I find it replenishing and refreshing, but it wasn't always that way. Uh, Going through my internship as a therapist and then getting licensed was incredibly rewarding and fulfilling and also exhausting and depleting, especially after having different experiences in agencies and community practices. You know, you get to do some really valuable work, but sometimes it comes at a pretty tremendous cost um, on a personal level in multiple ways. And having experienced that and then hitting the pandemic and having kind of a stop button, a pause button on the whole path and taking a a moment to reflect back and say, you know, what do I really love about being a therapist? And what do I love about this work? And what is just frankly killing me and, and is not serving my well-being? and having to take a, a list of those pros and cons, and then making some choices about how to move forward, which is how I came into coaching and especially love working with folks who are therapists, social workers, physicians, nurses, Uh, you know, people also in the tech fields, just anyone who's trying to take care of themselves while also pursuing their career goals. And it's such a delicate balance. And it's something I love talking about with people. Awesome. Yeah. And you mentioned that there were some things that quite frankly, you felt were killing you. So what was it that you noticed about how you were feeling that told you you were burning out or that it was, that it was kind of killing you? certainly a range of things, whether it was sensations I was getting in my body, fatigue effects, struggling to concentrate, not feeling motivated, to feeling irritable, having a short fuse, feeling like it's harder and harder to give more and more, especially as the days and the weeks go on, just feeling pretty depleted, despite 
loving the people that I worked with and loving the work that I did. It's like I came back to an empty battery. It's like getting a full night's sleep and waking up and feeling exhausted. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So was that something that you noticed quickly or did it take you some time to recognize that this was happening to you? Certainly a slow effect over time. I can remember a few periods that felt a little more acute and impending, but mm-hmm. mostly it felt like a slow creeping build that I didn't really notice it in the beginning. And then some way midway through, it really started to kick in on some level. And then towards the end, I could really feel it. Mm-hmm. And it was certainly exacerbated or worsened by environmental factors, systemic factors, cultural factors, you know, where you are and how you're treated and who you're interacting with has such a tremendous impact on our well-being. And when you are in supportive environments, you can certainly still experience burnout, maybe at a slower rate. But when you are in toxic environments, whether that's socially, culturally, systemically, or more localized in your workplace or your family unit or your own business practices, it really amplifies the effects. Yeah, absolutely. So the folks that you work with, do they do they come to you from like a like a, a certain type of environment? Like, are you mostly seeing folks who are still in agencies or do you see folks who are all across the board? It certainly varies across the board. I'm working with a lot of folks in the medical field, whether it's physical health or mental health, both in hospital settings, inpatient settings, outpatient settings, and also their own private practices. You know, folks who are at working at home and running their own businesses and talking about how work is bleeding into life and life is bleeding into work and how do we create some healthy separation and and really have what's called you know work-life integration mm-hmm. rather than work-life balance right because balance is hard to have these days but how we integrate these different pressures and demands in ways that are measured and intentional can really be protective practices for us and a lot of folks are also just struggling with that because there's a lot being demanded of us right now more so really than ever mm-hmm. yeah So what would be an example of work-life integration? How could that look different than trying to find a balance? Mm -hmm. I think for some folks, it's about getting really creative with their boundaries. And what I mean by that is some people really need a very strict, I'm working nine to five. And when that five o'clock, you know, time hits, I'm done. I'm closing the laptop. I am walking away. For some people, knowing that boundaries there is very comforting. For other people, maybe they have kids at home or other demands. They say, well, I might need to pause my work day, have a meal, work out, maybe take care of the kids or take them to or from school or whatever that looks like. And then when I have some more alone time or quiet time, I'm going to re-engage in work life. So for some people that might be, I'll do, you know, five or six hours during the day, take a few hours, pause, go back for a couple hours, wrap up and be done for the day. So it's really about thinking in terms of energy, exertion and replenishing. So how are you then putting those pieces together to take good care of yourself? Yeah. Yeah. That definitely sounds like a kind of like a holistic approach to it based on how the person works best versus what has maybe been prescribed by societal standards or just like pressures from other people about how they should work. Absolutely. And that comes up a lot too, that actually taking care of yourself, prioritizing your needs, focusing on your wellness is actually a revolutionary act because Mm -hmm. a lot of the systems that we are 
in swimming and existing in every day are giving us those opposite messages. Mm -hmm. Same thing for women in particular, right? For women to really stand up and say, this is what I need and I'm going to assert it and I'm not going to feel guilty about it. And I'm going to follow through, you know, what a tremendous act of empowerment and activism that is. And for a lot of women, a lot of time, it pushes against certain pressures, cultures, standards, isms that we've all been exposed to. So it can take a lot of time to decondition that response and to be able to wholeheartedly embrace and engage in our self-care and for men too, right? There's just tremendous pressure in our society to be successful. And a lot of that looks like material success, right? Or productivity uh, or putting our well-being first usually is not how we define success. So sometimes it's also another factor in that work-life integration is really reframing and redoing how we view our successes and really making sure that taking care of ourselves is heavily weighed in to that equation. Yeah. I like that. Seeing, seeing self-care as, as part of it, not just this thing that like you have to do. And it's a, it's a checklist item to take care of yourself, but like Mm -hmm. the work is the big thing. Right. But it sounds more like you're, you're advocating for people to quite honestly, just prioritize themselves first um, and to find a way of working that actually works for them that can help mm-hmm. them be more, more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? They have more longevity in the field if they're able to do it that way. Absolutely. I tell folks, you know, this is a marathon, not a sprint. This, this isn't just, I need to survive till tomorrow or next week. This is maybe decades and mm-hmm. the impacts that it has on our health in the short and long term. You know, sometimes when people are kind of wavering around, like, I don't really know if I have that time in my schedule during the day to make that happen for myself. And self-care checklist kind of always goes to the back. And we talk about preventative measures. You know, mm-hmm. this is sort of good medicine, right? So that when you are getting enough sleep or getting some downtime, you're preventing larger, more catastrophic issues coming down the line, whether that's your physical health, your mental health, your emotional or spiritual health, right? All of those layers that our health can become compromised when we don't feel like we have adequate resources, time and space to take care of ourselves and nurture ourselves. So trying to also think about that long-term as we're making that equation, because it's so easy to look at the meeting that we have to attend, the email we have to send, the client we have to call back. Those are very concrete, actionable items. So they usually go to the top of the list. Mm-hmm. The take a breathing break, go outside and enjoy the leaves for a couple of minutes, have a snack. No, no one's going to get in trouble with us if we don't do those things, right? There's not like the self-care police that's going to come in and say, hey, you didn't take a breathing break yesterday. I'm going to punch you. So it feels really easy to skip it, but then we start paying these subtle and insidious due dates down the line, payments, Mm -hmm. tax, you know, cost of what it takes to continue to operate at that level when we're not replenishing ourselves. Absolutely. Yeah. And that like, I don't know that I I think for myself, there have been times where I've fallen into that mentality too, of like, go hard at it. You have to do everything you can right now. And there there can be a lot of like economic pressures that are creating that sense. Mm -hmm. There's societal family pressures, just internal stuff too, where you feel like you need to for whatever reason. Um, And it's, 
it's been hard for me sometimes to remember that sustainability piece and the marathon piece and that you cannot, like when you're, you're running a marathon, you cannot sprint the first five miles. You're not going to make it like you're going to, you're not going to have the energy to finish. Um, mm-hmm. And for folks who really, you know, they've started off likely with the idea that this is going to be their main career. It can be a big disservice to feel like we have to sprint and do everything all at once and maintain that, that speed for an indefinite amount of time. It just doesn't work. Exactly. Yeah. And you may have periods of sprinting within the marathon. I think that's reasonable too. And people have a lot of life changes happening, or maybe you are starting your business or you're building your caseload, or you're having to take on maybe a new marketing practice or your work duties have shifted. I mean, there are certainly a plethora of examples of folks who have to kind of turn up the gas for a little while, right? And and kick it into a higher gear. But how do we do that sustainably? Or how do we bracket that within a sustainable way of saying, okay, well, I'm going to do this for a month or a week or six months or whatever your level is that's doable. And then how are you taking some extra rest time after that? How are you starting to slow down, cool down a little bit and give yourself a pause to breathe and to replenish. I think that's also a big thing that we don't get a lot of messaging around is we have plenty of advice about how to speed up and how to just, you know, get things done. And we really don't get a lot of education or conversation around how are we slowing down? How are we putting any kind of fuel back in that tank that we're depleting? Absolutely. Yeah. So when you are, you're coaching people and Maybe, maybe you're coaching somebody who's actively in that, that sprint, but they, they're reaching a point where they don't need to sprint anymore. How do you help them bring it back down in a way that feels, I don't know. I want to say reasonable. Cause like knowing myself when I, when I'm in sprints like that, it can feel, I don't want to say impossible, but almost impossible to, to take the foot off the gas. So how do you, how do you coach people through that? We talk a lot about the nervous system, including the two autonomic nervous system branches. So we have sympathetic and parasympathetic. That sympathetic nervous system branch is our fight, flight, freeze, appease. It's go mode. It's our stress response. And then we have the parasympathetic nervous system response, which is like a paramedic coming in and doing some restorative practices. So the first step I think is having folks build the awareness around what's happening for them so that when they have the awareness, they then can build choice and then beginning to implement some of those self-soothing techniques and interventions, things like those breathing breaks. You know, it kind of sounds colloquial and cliche and ridiculous, but when we really are taking that pause and breathing all the way deeply down into our diaphragm, we're sending a safety signal to our brain of saying, Yes, you are stressed out. Yes, things are hard, but you are safe enough right now to take a deep breath. That metaphorical saber-toothed tiger is not on our heels at this moment. So let's take a pause, let's gather, and then let's make a game plan. So that's one of the things that I love about coaching. It's so much about the how. Saying if you are burnt out or you are trying to slow down, how are we going to do that for you? What are the specific action steps, plans, sequences, and techniques that we're going to use to get you there? And also, like you said, setting realistic expectations. If we have a big gap between our expectations and reality, we are going to suffer more because those two things are never going to come together. They're never going to align. And we're constantly going to be in the shoulda, coulda, whatas. 
So when I'm working with folks, I say, you know, make sure whatever goal you set is reasonable, pragmatic, doable, gentle, right? The other part that we commonly get tripped up on is we try to do too much at once and then we get overwhelmed and then we shut down. So the antidote to that is baby steps and just do another one and another one and another one and you adjust as you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I find that in, in my therapy practice where I, I mean, I specialize in seeing folks who are burnt out and experiencing the, the anxiety and depression that comes with that. That is a big part of the work is like, I know that this feels like a major urgent thing that needs to be fixed right now. And it feels yeah. large and you want to take mm-hmm. drastic action and trust me, I get it. I've been there. I've done the drastic action and it can feel good. However, like those baby steps and the small things that you can do, like those are the foundational things, not only to help you right now to get through this process and this period of burnout, but you now have a roadmap for the next time. If a next time happens where you can say, okay, I'm getting this big overwhelming feeling back. I know that what I need to do right now is set a hard boundary around my end time at work. And then after that, what I need to do is set up a do not disturb in the next Y and Z. Um, So I I appreciate that you bring that up because especially in the overwhelmed, stressed out brain, we can feel like the big drastic action is the only thing that's going to work. But there are so many steps that can be taken otherwise to help you along the way. Right. Yeah. Because that stress response is all about on or off switch. It's fixed or it's not fixed. It's black or white. Mm -hmm. And we know that our brains on a physiological level in the frontal lobe are a little bit more compromised when we're trying to make decisions, when we're stressed out. So when we do have that ability to step back and be a little bit more meta about our own process, right. And to, to take a look at that, we're really able to serve ourselves best. And like you said, to have a game plan for when things get tough, that Mm -hmm. you can plan all day and sometimes you know what hits the fan and then you're scrambling Mm -hmm. and to also have flexibility. I think that's one of the greatest themes that's come up in the last two years working with folks is the definition of intelligence itself is how we adapt. So being creative and flexible, I think is such a wonderful point of resiliency for a lot of folks and that your self-care practices or your burnout prevention is not going to look the same as everybody else because everyone is so unique and original in their own ecosystem of what they're dealing with and what their pressures are and and their whys of what they're doing. Mm -hmm. So to have a customized approach is so important. Yeah, absolutely. And as you were talking about that, the one thing that crossed my mind, which is maybe more of an aside, but for all of us who are, you know, what is this? We're going into calendar year three of the pandemic. Um, for those of us who are, you know, remaining in the field, or it doesn't really matter where we are, right? Like everybody's had their own process through this. Um, the methods that you use now to survive this particular period of your life, um, they, they kind of give you a, a blueprint for like how to handle extreme long-term stress. Um, mm-hmm. And I know that a lot of people are really struggling with it. And I have also seen a lot of people really coming to and coming to the realization that it's actually 
really difficult right now to just be a human. Um, and I'm seeing more people advocating for themselves and their self-care and this slowing down, um, which is really cool to see. So that just popped into my mind. Um, the optimist in me wants to say like, if you can get through this period and come out alive, basically, (laughs) (laughs) once this pandemic, I don't think it'll end necessarily, but it'll probably, what do they say? Become more endemic. Mm-hmm. This this is a blueprint in and of itself for you to kind of understand what it looks like for you to be under extreme stress and to kind of learn how to manage that through this period, whether that is like literally just needing to take a nap mm-hmm. or if you need creativity outlets um, or if you need to be in connection with people, even if it's virtually. So that was a little bit more of a tangent, but I think it falls in line with that idea of like, the way that you survive this period of time <clears throat> and this burnout and this stress, it's going to be unique to the needs that you have as a person um, and can hopefully provide you with some sort of blueprint in the future. Yes. It reminds me of post-traumatic growth. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we talk a lot in the culture about the negative parts of these experiences and we absolutely should because they are completely valid and it's a wonderful way of staying away from toxic positivity, which does mm-hmm. not serve us, right? We have to embrace the both. And, yeah. and part of that too, is also embracing what am I getting out of this in terms of, am I growing? And I, I think for some people, that's a really varied perspective. I think if you are in acute suffering right now, that doesn't feel relevant. It's not on the table. Maybe it comes later, maybe it doesn't. And for some folks, maybe in different degrees of experience, they are having that of realizing, you know, I can be resilient. I can figure out a way to get through this and survive it. It might be messy and I might be making some mistakes. Maybe it might not be perfect and that's Mm -hmm. okay too. How do I embrace imperfection? How do I realize that I may only get three things done today instead of five and that's fine. And not only is it fine, it's wonderful because you did three things, right? It's like, if you're going to fall down, try and fall forward you know, just uh, continue to make some progress. It doesn't have to be perfect. You're still progressing. And I think that's something too, that we can bring into any kind of self-care practice of actually recognizing our successes in terms of what are we surviving? What are we attempting? What are we partially completing? How are we developing? Uh, Those are other things that we can bring into our practice when we're brushing our teeth at night. You know, I love to think about what are three things that I did today or did well or I'm proud of or accomplished or made some progress on or attempted, Mm -hmm. you know, where am I seeing that my efforts have payoff and reward? I think that's a big part of dealing with and preventing burnout is feeling like the effort that we put in has positive results because also on the flip side, if there are things that we are resenting and we're not addressing them that's really going to be problematic in, in short order for us. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree. And it's funny that you bring that up too. Um, last night, my husband and I were on a nighttime walk and towards the end of it, I mean, he was reflecting on like, Oh, it's so cool that you've been able to start a business and do these things. And I'm like, yeah, but it doesn't feel real. I'm still back in that place of like mentally being scared and burnt out. And what was helpful to me in that moment was he didn't try to be like, Oh, don't worry about it. You're fine. Uh, But he really, he helped spell out for me, like, okay, so here's the journey just as far as I've known you X, Y, Z, all of the stuff that you've done, 
and here you are. And the person who has helped you figure that out to a large degree has been you, like you've taken every step of that journey. Um, Mm -hmm. And so like, it can be helpful to remind ourselves of the journey that we've taken of those positive steps, acknowledging the places where it's been difficult or we haven't succeeded because that's also part of the story. And I mean, if you have somebody in your life who can reflect back to you, the journey that you've been on and say like, holy shit, look at where you've been. Like you've taken (laughs) all of these steps. Um, Yeah. It was, it was just so helpful to me in that moment to hear that. Yeah. There's been some definite stumbling blocks and I haven't always Mm -hmm. made the big progress that I want, but I'm still here. I'm still doing stuff. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Like the phrase, uh, people underestimate what they can do in 10 years and they overestimate what they can do in a year. Yeah. So we forget because we're in the weeds every day trying to figure out the next problem and our brains are problem solving mechanisms. It is what they are fantastic at doing. And when we solve one picks the next one up and starts to chomp on it and all of the good stuff, all of the accomplishments, the, if it's not broke, don't fix it gets filtered out. So it really can be an intentional practice of mindfulness and intention to stop and pause for a moment and take a reflective breath and say, what am I doing that is great or wonderful or working or I'm making progress towards or succeeding with because otherwise our brains basically will ignore it. So we have to kind of work with and also work maybe a little bit against our own nature there Mm -hmm. to get the benefits of that positive psychological mindset. Yeah. So when you're coaching people, how do you get them, like, how do you start them down that path of building an intentional practice around recognizing the positive things that they've done? Mm -hmm. Making it a practice of some kind, whether it's checking in each week on our phone calls or every other week or every month, whenever they check in, the first thing I want to hear is what successes have you had? Because there are always successes. Sometimes it takes a moment or two to dig in and find them, but they're always there. So we're starting by putting fuel in your tank and saying, you are making things happen. Let's recognize that. Because that also increases our confidence and our sense of self-efficacy, that I can accomplish things. Mm -hmm. And those things put together makes us more motivated. And then we start to talk about, okay, what's next? What's the, what's the next baby step? What's the next part of your project that we want to work on? Because self-care is a project, mm-hmm. right? This is not one and done. This is not a quick check mark off the box and it's, it's over. This is a massive undertaking, really, truly over our lifetimes. And it really requires breaking it down. And so that's one of the first things we talk about is how you take a project, break it down into several tasks, and then start accomplishing the tasks. So for some folks, the first task is I need to figure out what's not working. And particularly around burnout, are we noticing what we're resenting? And are we thinking about change around that? Whether it's change in how we tolerate it or change in what we can do about it, that can be a crucial starting point because there's first order change and there's second order change. So the first order change is going to be more immediate, but it's not going to be as long lasting. That second order change is where we're going to get shifts. So for example, a first order change might be, well, I'm going to make sure to take a short vacation. 
so that I'm getting some refreshment time. But if you start to notice, you know what, I'm taking vacations, but I'm still feeling really burnt out, maybe then we get into the second order change. What does that look like? Do you go from, I don't know, full time to three quarters time? Do you change your job role? Do you do different tasks? Do you switch industries? Do you drastically reduce your living expenses and then are able to change your work situation? I mean, the answers are super varied for folks, but that's where you can start to dig in and really look at the pragmatics of saying, what's your action plans and what are we going to do about it for you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I like that idea of having first and second order change. Cause it can, it's almost like plan A and plan B where you can, you have the freedom and flexibility to try, try things and see if it's helpful. Um, and then if that doesn't work the way that you need it to, you have something else you can do. Um, and I find that for a lot of folks that I work with and just like in my life, generally people that I talk to who are burnt out, they feel like there has to be one fix or like one big thing mm-hmm. or one main thing. And if this doesn't work, then I don't know what I'm going to do because this has to work. And that like building some emotional and mental flexibility into the process, I imagine is super important as well. Absolutely. There's two paths basically you can explore when when doing this the first path is can i make my current situation more tolerable you know i was talking to somebody the other week and they said you know 30 clients a week or 30 hours a week is just too much and i am starting to hate it and i don't want to log in for my sessions and i don't want to be here and i you know i just i don't feel like this is sustainable and they say okay well what does 25 look like what does 20 look like sometimes it's about we can't fix the entire solution, particularly right now, but we can turn the volume down enough to the point where it's palatable. And then they come back and say, oh, 20 hours, it makes all the difference in the world. I have enough time to breathe. I have enough time for notes. I have enough time in the middle of the day to make myself a good lunch. This is kind of a game changer, Mm -hmm. right? So we explore all the nuances and subtleties around, is there something that can be done around the resentment points of where you're at? to make it tolerable, more bearable, even heck, let's shoot for the stars. Let's be enjoyable. (laughs) How do we get back to that? And if those strategies don't feel doable or adequate, which sometimes they are not, then we start to look at the bigger changes. Does that mean leaving, shifting, truly augmenting what's happening to open up different paths? Because the metaphor of a plant in the closet comes to mind, right? If you take a beautiful plant and you stick it in a dark closet, I don't care how much you water the plant or sing to the plant or put fertilizer on the plant, that plant's going to die. It's just not going to make it. And so that being able to create that distinguishment, I think is really uh, helpful for folks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I can imagine it would be, it's a helpful metaphor to see yourself as like a living organism that needs multiple multiple sources of nourishment. Um, Mm -hmm. You can get all the water you could possibly want, but if you're not getting adequate sunlight, you're just going to (laughs) wither. Like it's not not doable. Um, For the people that you work with, how many of them have come to the conclusion that they need to leave? A fair amount. And sometimes that means they don't leave their company, but they change positions. So instead of working 
face-to-face with clients, maybe they switch into a supervising role or an auditing role or a consulting role, or let's say maybe they're at a big tech company and they are managing and they don't want to manage anymore. So they step down and they go into something different like project development or something more direct service. So there can be a lot of shifting within I think just like you mentioned earlier, it feels like there needs to be a drastic solution. I need to quit and sell all my stuff and go live on a boat, which, you know, I quit and sold all my stuff and bought a tiny home. So, you know, (laughs) sometimes you need to quit and buy the boat. You know, I get it. I totally do. Mm -hmm. But sometimes there are some middle ground solutions that open up to folks, particularly when they do have responsibilities, people they're taking care of. Uh, financial obligations, right? Not everybody can just pick up and leave. So then we start to look at, are there lateral shifts you can make is, mm-hmm. can you cut your agency time in half and maybe do something different that isn't therapy half of the time during the week? Yeah, probably won't pay as well, but how much is your sanity worth? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, may, I mean, this, this podcast is for mental health professionals. So I'll just, I'll speak to that crowd, although I'm sure it's not specific to that crowd. Um, And this applies to me too. So when I started working as a therapist, I felt like the only option was to be full-time because I'm a therapist now. I got it. I got to just be a therapist. And of course, like that early process is also getting your licensure hours and you need to get Mm -hmm. the supervision. You don't want to like linger over that for too long, most of the time. Um, But I think for myself, I really struggled with the idea of not being like full force, full-time all the time because it seemed like, well, if I got into this, why not just go, you know, all in. Um, and, and now that I'm thinking about it, that probably, that probably contributed to some of the burnout that I experienced. <laughs> Me too. Me too. Cause yeah, it becomes a part of your identity. It becomes a part of what is fulfilling and rewarding and who doesn't want more fulfilling and rewarding work. And yeah. we have to also keep in mind that cost, right? I can remember being in private practice and having, I don't know, anywhere between 20 and 30 clients a week. And I'd work four days a week, Monday through Thursday, which was huge for me. Having that Friday off, that for me was a game changer. But getting to the end of that Thursday and saying, I can't hear any more stories. I would like to go home and not interact with anything that is verbal because I am spent in that sense. And so you're right. If we can really integrate something that is not draining us on that level that can be really wonderful having some other kind of work and it makes us really appreciate the work when we come back in because we feel refreshed and engaged and it goes back to that quality over quantity argument right that it's better to get something of higher quality than more quantity if it's draining us and i think that also gets paired with an attitude that our self-care is not selfish it is an act of self-preservation. I think that mm-hmm. comes up for folks a lot, particularly folks in helping fields and especially people doing therapy services, providing therapy, mm-hmm. because it's so much about the other person. Right. There's right. so much of service. And when we come into the world with that mentality, it doesn't leave a whole lot of room for how we nurture ourselves. We naturally put ourselves on the back burner, which in the therapy room is the therapeutically appropriate thing to do, right? That is their session. It is about the client. Mm -hmm. But then how do we embrace the other side of that, which is I have to fill my bucket in order to be able to serve anybody else. Because ultimately, Mm -hmm. if I'm not taking care of myself, I really am no good to 
myself nor anyone else because we're drained. And we know what that looks like for a therapist, right? If it starts to become their session or our boundaries are getting blurred or they're distracted during sessions in the way that they're not normally, that's how we start to see that showing up. And so those can be points of information for us that, oh, I need to maybe do some tending because I'm starting to see some signs. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the way that like I've started to shift my perspective around self-care as well. And the, the phrase that self-care is not selfish. I, I agree with it and also disagree with it. Um, and I disagree with it to the extent that, um, and I, I've been talking with people about this lately. It, it is actually selfish because it's self-directed, but it's not bad that it's selfish, which I think is the distinction that we've not necessarily made, um, or the relationship to the, to the idea of selfishness is the one where there's some issue, right? Like within society, we've just accepted this concept that selfishness is inherently not a good thing. And nobody should ever aim to be selfish because why would you ever want to do anything that is just inherently and specifically for yourself, (laughs) Um, yes. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword because like there is the one side where taking care of yourself and being self-nurturing is super important to your ability to do your job. And that's just a fact of the field. And it's mm-hmm. for people who want to be able to engage in the marathon, you, you got to nourish yourself. You got to take that water, take the gel packs and take a break if you need to. Mm-hmm. Um, so that you can continue running and serving, serving the people that you work with. And I'm, I'm starting to challenge people on this a little bit, which is like, you can also just do things for yourself just because you want to, <laughs> because it's fulfilling yes. for you. And if it doesn't necessarily mean that you are pouring back into other people, but you're, you're just taking for yourself because you need to, um, that that's also okay. It's okay to just do things for yourself, which I, th- mm-hmm. I see therapists and helpers in general and women in general, just really struggling with that idea. Like it's really hard to conceive of a world where we could just do things for ourselves. Yes. Yes. I relate to that so deeply. And it brings up to this idea of decoupling, taking care of ourselves from narcissism. Mm. Right? I think a lot of what we sometimes see is that people taking care of themselves, they get labeled as being maybe narcissistic in, in personality or temperament or disposition. And it's not, it's actually just what taking care of yourself looks like Mm -hmm. and that there is room and space for that, not only in our cultural dialogue, but also in our day-to-day lives, that it is healthy to do something just for us just because it brings us pleasure. And I was working Mm -hmm. with someone the other week and I said, you have to do one fun thing between now and when I talk to you next. And I don't care what it is. I don't care how big or how small, but I'm going to ask when you call me next week and I want an answer because you deserve to do something that is frivolous and just for you. That has to be a part of the wheel. That has to be one of the spokes of self-care that gets nurtured. And the more spokes you have, the more resilient you are when one of them falls out. That not only is this within our right and our purview as a human being to have, but it's a really intelligent practice in the sense of you're really taking care of your long-term well-being in that sense. It's preventative. Mm-hmm. And that really sets us up to be in a good place, whether that's 
a self-soothing act or a self-care act, they both have value and they also are distinct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Being able to have, I, I like that image that you used of a, the spokes of a wheel. So there are lots of spokes of a wheel um, that keep that wheel functioning and moving forward. Um, so what are the other, what are the other spokes that you tend to focus on with people? Mm-hmm. Anything that's replenishing to them. So whether that means taking good care of their physical health, working out, making sure maybe you're seeking medical care when you need it to reading a book because you love it, right? Having intellectual stimulation, having social stimulation, having any sort of spirituality or spiritual fulfillment that works for them on whatever level, having social connections, having romantic fulfillment, sexual fulfillment, making sure whatever you're taking into your body is serving and nourishing you, whether that means food or anything recreational, just really looking at the impact of every spoke and taking a moment to evaluate and saying, how are these various areas doing in my life? Typically when people get into connection with me, they know what's missing, right? I really think clients have a deep innate sense of what they need. Sometimes they're just not sure exactly how to get there. Mm-hmm. So we start there and we build and really embracing that everyone is going to be unique Again, you know, we keep coming back to it, but there really is no one size fits all. It's really getting into the details and also thinking about how self-soothing, which is really sort of like a first order change. It's the snack, it's the TV show, it's whatever those momentary distractions are and the self-care acts, which is sometimes doing the difficult stuff that isn't fun. It's not a bubble bath. It usually means going to the dentist or calling your tax person to get that tax thing figured out or getting that insurance premium lowered or that difficult phone call you didn't really want to make, but you know, you'll feel better when you do. Mm-hmm. You know, that has to also be a part of the equation if we're really looking to make those deeper changes, which hopefully mm-hmm. ameliorate some of the suffering down the line. Absolutely. So really thinking about short-term spokes and long-term spokes. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. And I know for myself, like, some of the longer term spokes have been like boundaries with people that mm-hmm. I feel like boundaries are kind of a buzzword and it's really like, yeah, boundaries are great and you can do it and it's wonderful. And that's all true. It's very true. But there's like also this, I don't want to say dark underside, but just like there's an uncomfortable thing, feeling, mm-hmm. sensation, conversation that comes with boundaries and it's not necessarily something that's one and done. So like, it's often something that you have to assert and have consequences attached to. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that is actually like for myself and the people I work with, I've seen boundaries be a really huge area of improving self-care. Once there's some willingness to sit with the discomfort and tolerate the discomfort that comes with saying no or you know, setting whatever boundary that you need. Um, yeah. So I just, that, that came to mind because self-care is often thought of as something that feels really good, but you're right. Like it's, it's going to the doctor, it's going to the dentist. It's having a really uncomfortable conversation and telling somebody that something they did was not okay. Um, it's having a really scary conversation with your boss and saying, 
hey, I am not doing well and I need something to change. Um, and those conversations are scary. <laughs> yes. I mean, so uncomfortable. Um, but ultimately, like, they can be very, very worth it. And you can build on those things as well. Mm -hmm. So it becomes, again, part of that sustainability practice. Yes, so much so. And I think that's where starting small and building to larger goals really comes into place, because you're right. If we just jump into the hardest conversation right away, it is very unlikely that's going to happen. We are probably going to psych ourselves out of it, right? So I tell people, say no to somebody at the grocery store, turn down a telemarketer, right? I mean, just start having these lower stake experiences with flexing that muscle. It's like working out. You don't start bench pressing hundreds of pounds right away. You only do that if you maybe you'd like an injury, right? We start small and we build, and then you can work your way up to those tougher conversations or Mm -hmm. beginning to say no to somebody in smaller ways and then getting to the tougher conversation later. Yeah. Uh, And then it's very indicative, right? That part of self-care are the choices that we make moving forward. And what I mean by that is when you set a small boundary with somebody and you watch how they respond, it's incredibly informative to the quality of that connection. And then how we decide to place that person in our lives that maybe we don't cut them out entirely, but we don't look to them for that thing anymore. They become maybe a fair weather friend or we just realize that if we are going to maintain that connection, we have to come in with a little bit more of a self-protective practice with that. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the ways that we can reframe having those conversations, right? There really is no loss in this. Even if it goes sour, you have learned something and that's very valuable information about how you want to move forward in life with that person. So yes, this is going to feel uncomfortable. Yes, you're not going to enjoy this. You might not even get what you want, right? I mean, if we just think about that from an objective perspective, this might be a complete disaster, But the important thing was that you flexed the muscle. Mm -hmm. The outcome really is very secondary Mm -hmm. because if you can flex that muscle, you can do that in all the other parts of your life. And when we stop tolerating the things that no longer serve us, it's a tide that lifts all boats, right? And we start to not tolerate other things in our lives. And then we get down the line and say, oh, I'm doing so much better. And that's because I've really changed how I work in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. And I've seen that happen. I like that phrase or that, that image too. It's a tide that rise all boats because with some of the folks that I've worked with, these changes can seem overwhelming at first, but, mm-hmm. you know, as I've, you know, progressed in my work with people and watch them grow, I continuously hear like, yeah, and now I'm standing up for myself and I'm taking less shit and I'm not just letting people walk all over me like this this area over here, I'm still struggling with, and I'm going to work on it. But like over here, I've really done a lot of work. I'm like, that's fantastic. That's Mm -hmm. amazing. Like you are, you're building so much for yourself that eventually that part over there will still be scary, but you, you're going to feel like you can do it because you've Mm -hmm. practiced so much in other areas. Um, which is, it's just a cool thing to watch as people take that and really embody this sense of like, yeah, I can, I can set limits for myself and and not tolerate shit that bothers me and that exactly. hurts me. Yeah, exactly. And it's like watching a flower bloom. You know, when one petal opens, the other ones want to follow and it builds that confidence. And you start to look back and say, man, I was really tolerating a lot of shit. Mm-hmm. It wasn't serving me. 
and, and was really costing me. And I'm so glad I don't have to pay that price anymore because ultimately it just wasn't worth it. Yeah. And that's a big part of the discussion around self-care too, is only you get to make the choice as to what you're willing to tolerate and what you're willing to pay for that. Mm -hmm. And a way of keeping that regulated is to notice when it's gone over, when we've gone past the point where we feel comfortable with the transaction, that's when resentment builds. And it's that portion of the effort or the output or the relationship that really serves a detrimental effect. And I think something that's really challenging for helpers, maybe therapists in particular, but helpers in general is so much of what we do during our work is tolerating discomfort. Mm -hmm. That's what we do. We sit with people in their darkest, their deepest, their most difficult. Sometimes it's a couple arguing in front of us. Sometimes it's somebody really struggling with whatever it is they're struggling with, even all the way down to suicidality or, you know, major symptoms that they're experiencing. So we have had this experience repetitively of feeling discomfort in our body and tolerating it, yeah. ignoring it, subliminating it. So then we start to do that with our self-care practices. We think, oh, well, it's just more discomfort. Why, why do I have to do anything about that? You know, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm supposed to tolerate that. That's what I do. I'm a therapist. And instead, putting a big red sticky note on that and saying, this is something we do not tolerate because I'm not getting paid to tolerate that. That's right. a distinguishing factor, right? Yeah. Yeah. Clients pay us for our, not our love, but our time and also our ability to tolerate discomfort. Mm -hmm. And so we have to remember personal ones. There is no badge of honor for that. There is no nobility in that. It's actually a detriment and learning to recognize this is actually a different shade of discomfort that I do need to act upon. This is not something just to tolerate. Right. Yeah. And I also imagine that what might end up happening as the therapist starts to learn that they don't have to tolerate that level of distress in their personal life, just because they do it professionally. Um, that those types of embodiment practices would then filter into their work with clients where, yes, we're going to, we're going to sit with and tolerate these emotions and understand that like, once we have gotten over the acute stages of things, we can reflect on it and say, okay, so how, how do things need to change in your life if they can change in your life so that you can pay attention to these things and self-nurture, set boundaries, do what you need to do to take care of yourself so that hopefully these intense symptoms or feelings um, can, be, can be managed or even alleviated to some degree. Um, so again, it's kind of like we do it for ourselves for our own benefit because we're allowed to do that. And there is some element of like, this can be helpful to the people that we work with as well when we're able to understand that process of okay, how do I take care of me and nurture myself and not just like accept the fact that I'm going to be uncomfortable for the rest of my life. And that's just the way it is. <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think in some ways there are always going to be aspects of our existence that will be uncomfortable and we certainly sure. cannot self-care our way out of them. Yeah. But just like we're talking about, it's knowing the difference that makes a difference, mm -hmm. knowing the areas where we have autonomy choice, freedom, the ability to take care of ourselves, and then giving ourselves permission and support and resources in order to do it. Yeah. And then repeating that over and over and over again until we feel wellness or some degree thereof that is available to us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So for you, 
I'm just curious um, if you'd be open to share some of the spokes of your self-care practice. So how do you keep yourself feeling fulfilled and nourished through your work? So many spokes. (laughs) (laughs) I think the biggest one is just knowing that I'm allowed to have downtime. You know, I remember being in grad school and just feeling like there was never enough time in the day. There was always an assignment to be done. It just felt relentless. And I really struggled to enjoy any kind of downtime. I'm eating dinner and watching a show and I'm, I'm just thinking about the paper that has to be written for tomorrow. I'm thinking about that client I just saw and what resources I'm going to get them. I'm, my brain was constantly chewing on something. And I came to this realization of there is always going to be homework. Like for the next two or three years, however long this takes you, there was always going to be something. And if you cannot give yourself permission to have a little bit of peace for a little bit of time, you're not going to make it because you're going to burn out. And so having to really focus on that internal dialogue and say, it's there. I will get to it when I'm done eating or I'll get to it in the morning or what have you. I've blocked out time for it. I'm honoring that need that needs to get done. But I also need to honor the fact that I live in a human body and it has needs and attending to that relentlessly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that. And that, that actually lines up fairly well with, I guess you could call it a new initiative or just a new thing that I've focused on is like focusing on the humanity of the practitioner and those very Mm -hmm. human needs that we all have, which is like ultimately what this show is about and like all of it, right? Like burnout is a byproduct of not honoring the humanity within ourselves or not having not having systems that honor our humanity or recognize that or prioritize it Um, Mm -hmm. and being able to find ways to basically look at ourselves and tell ourselves you're literally a human. Like you don't get to get around that because you're a therapist. There's not, it doesn't work that way. (laughs) So (laughs) um, you got to sleep, you got to eat, you got to, you know, do what you got to do to move your body, feel well, uh, rest, take naps. Mm-hmm. You'll, you'll get to the notes, you'll get to the homework, whatever you got to do, it'll happen. Um, so I, I appreciate yeah. hearing that you I think you said you attend to that re- le- relentlessly. Yeah. Relentlessly. Um, mm-hmm. as part of, as part of your self-care, which is pretty cool. Absolutely. And having things like healthy escapism, Mm-hmm. particularly in the last couple of years, when we mm-hmm. open the blinds and look outside, things are bleak for multiple various reasons on a lot of different levels for a lot of different communities. Mm-hmm. And we need to stay aware of that. We need to stay engaged in that in the ways that we can, but we also have to take a breath. We have to take a pause and we have to take care of ourselves on an individual level. So having things like my Nintendo Switch has just been a lifesaver in the last two years, right? Mm-hmm. Something I can just plug into and have fun. I mean, talk about frivolity. There's there's no reason to engage in that other than just pure fun and enjoyment. Mm-hmm. And it's brought balance. And I think when we remember when we can have a little bit of fun, it's a soothing mechanism in and of itself. It's another safety signal to the nervous system saying, yes, things are hard and challenging and you're up against it. And we also have this moment of joy and play that Mm -hmm. recreation is so important. And we know that as kids and it's easy to lose as adults with all the responsibilities that we're shouldering, 
but it's still a vital part of who we are and how we function as an organism. Mm -hmm. So we have to really sometimes fight and make time for that. And then it feels good. And then we get a little sample of what it's like to feel good. And then that gives us motivation to do more of the self-care practices because mm -hmm. we've, we remembered what that state of being is like, which is sometimes easy to get detached from or numbed out from when we are stressed because we're focused on problem solving. Mm -hmm. But it becomes a very powerful tool and mechanism to continue to motivate us to do the self-care practices that we need to do. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that, um, that play aspect. And it made me think of like with most other animals, we don't see, we don't see animals like stop being playful with each other just because they're all of a sudden not in the, the baby stage. Like I'm thinking specifically of my own cats. They're both adult <laughs> cats but holy shit, they always want to play. And I'm like, <laughs> and, yeah. and you can tell like when they have the time to play, they play with each other or they play with me. That helps them downregulate, right? They, they seem anxious before they play and then they play and they're good. They're like, okay, I'm mm -hmm. going to nap. We're safe. Um, and it's just funny how like for humans, we've, we've decided that because we're a certain age or whatever, like we don't play anymore, which is silly. Um, right. Yeah. And I, I like that you bring that, you know, Nintendo switch. That's just, that's a fun way to engage with like creativity and play and just, yeah, that healthy escapism of having some fun. Yeah. And incorporating rewards too. talk about mm -hmm. something we do with kids that we don't do enough as adults where we don't get a lot of as adults is, what's your reward for getting that thing done? It's the mm -hmm. question I ask people all the time. And a lot of times the answer is it'll be done or I have no idea, or I don't even know where to start in terms of rewarding myself. Mm -hmm. That's pretty indicative too, of where we are at our self-care journey. Yeah. And creating some intentionality around that. Like when I have to do a difficult task, there are probably multiple milkshakes and a sushi dinner at the end. <laughs> yes. oh I'm goodness. not even talking about a summated reward. I want rewards on the way. I want incentives <laughs> on the road, right? I want, I want a little dangling carrot as I'm working through the hard stuff, because why not? If we can associate a positive stimulus with something that is negative, the total sum is a little bit less negative. So mm -hmm whatever that looks like for folks, whether it's that new book you wanted to buy and you haven't spent 10 minutes reading it. So you do that or extra time on your TV show or, you know, whatever works for you, do it. And if you're not doing it, start doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Cool. Well, it does look like we're coming up against the end of our time. Um, but I do usually like to ask my guests at the end of our conversation. Um, if you were to leave the audience with something to think about or something to chew on, uh, what would you want them to know? Consider your self-care and consider it carefully. Start to build a roadmap and it's okay to start with what's not working. What are the pain points? What is the roughest part of your week? And when you've identified it, how can you build some self-care around it? What can you do to make that more bearable? And if you're in the place of your self-care journey where you're really starting to think about, is this sustainable long-term, maybe starting to explore some of those second order changes, mm -hmm. those bigger changes down the line. What does that look like? And what could it possibly look like? And are you talking with your colleagues to see what they're doing? 
are you reaching out and getting support, whether that means therapy or coaching or mentorship, you know, opening yourself up to that process, being curious and being gentle. The absolute first thing, top first and foremost, I want people to leave with is this is about self-compassion. This is about nurturing the self in a really loving, non-judgmental way. And if you find something that doesn't work saying, okay, this isn't working great. That's fine. We can try some other routes and I can keep trying at this until I get something that feels good. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. That's a very um, self-loving way of approaching it is just, yeah, if something's not working, okay, we'll try something different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining today. It was a really lovely conversation and I'm sure a lot of folks listening have learned a lot and have been able to resonate pretty deeply with the stuff that you've been talking about. So I appreciate that so much. And yeah, thank you for coming on today. Thank you for having me. It's so wonderful to talk about this stuff. And I always tell folks, please reach out, tell me your thoughts, tell me what you're chewing on, whether that's through my website or through social medias, email, you know, I, mm-hmm. I love to just hear how folks are doing in particular therapists. This is a sacred yeah. community for me. And I really want to make sure that therapists are getting nurtured and looked after. So I think embracing that community is so important and such a fundamental part of self-care is that we don't have to do this by ourselves, that we have thought partners that can get on board. So Mm -hmm. love to hear from folks. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I will include your contact information in the show notes. So if anybody is looking for some help with self-care, needing to plan around that, um, Christy's information will be in the, uh, the show notes. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks, Meg. Hey everyone. Thank you so much for listening today. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. And I hope that whoever or wherever you are, you can start having more conversations in your circles of support about better ways to support ourselves and to support each other through burnout. If you like today's show, please make sure to head over to wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, I would love it if you left a rating and a review on there to help get the word out. Thanks so much, y'all. Until next time, take care of yourselves, and I will see you again soon.